Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening where we will continue our reflections into the book of Genesis. And we have what set aside three evenings to really lay the foundation. I thought it was going to be two, but uh, given some of your questions you're asking me, it turned out to be three, which is great, which is fine because it really did answer some of your questions. I hope, by the grace of God, go I and lay maybe a stronger foundation than I thought was originally needed. So with that, what I do want to do is jump back into the book of Genesis. I touched upon the first verse here, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth uh, yesterday evening, and that was a bit of a teaser because I did get a question in regards to that first verse, a question I more or less thought was going to be coming sooner or later and that is the question regarding uh, the Big Bang. And specifically, the question was, you know, where does the church stand on the Big Bang theory as it relates to the existence of God and all of that? I, I have devoted plenty of programs to some of this, but I did want to highlight something here. You know, the Catholic Church <laughs> has always affirmed the Big Bang theory uh, in a big, oh, by the way, moment. <laughs> The Big Bang Theory, originally hypothesized in 1927, was by a Jesuit priest and physicist. The Catholic Church is not opposed to science in as much as it elevates science. The Catholic Church lives and breathes in those two modes of faith and reason, right? We are called to use this capacity we have been given to reason. What is the instrument to reason? But logic. So we study certain principles so as to uh, better understand what <laughs> God did when he created, to the least of which, of course, is apply it to the Big Bang Theory. So uh, what is the Big Bang Theory? Well, the Big Bang Theory is based on the central proposition that Essentially, my friends, the universe is continually expanding. The universe was what, but originally contained within a single point, in a highly intense state of heat and density. As the universe began to expand, it cooled, allowing the, the formation of subatomic particles, which began a series of physical cosmological processes, which ultimately led to what, but the known universe. Right Now, while this has become the most commonly accepted explanation for the beginnings of the universe, many scientists have previously expressed what we could call an instinctive opposition to the notion of a beginning point, since this would represent a question which science could not answer. As the famed Professor Stephen Hawking once famously said in his autobiography, one would have to appeal to religion and the hand of God to determine how the universe started off. So when you talk about the Big Bang Theory, you're not talking about something that is in opposition to just not the Catholic faith, but the Christian faith, 
but one that illumines, right? We study science. We apply our reason so as to come to better understand God's love letter to man, that which we call creation, right? Creation, my friends, is God's love letter to man. How many of you out there don't study carefully, read carefully all of those love letters that have been written to you? Creation, my friends, is one great love letter that God has written to man. And over time, man, as he ought, has studied carefully this love letter. And how does he do so? By applying his reason. But once you carefully read this love letter, that which we call creation, what does it do but open us up to faith, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created the heavens also. So he created not just what was seen, but what was also unseen. Not just the material, but also the spiritual. And so if we are going to understand the full meaning of man, what do we have to do? Look at and and study carefully our bodies? Sure. But what about our souls? What about the spiritual? And for those of you who would use the Bible as exclusively this book of science, well, you have already failed. Because my friends, the Bible is first and foremost a book of faith, right? A book of faith. It is in history, and it has elements of science within it to the degree that history records science, but it is never, never to be reduced to a book of science. So let us re-engage Genesis chapter. I will go ahead and read uh, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. Okay, so one of the things we are going to be doing in our study on the book of Genesis is apply what we talked about last week, the literal sense and the spiritual sense. So the literal sense will have us considering carefully who the audience was that uh, the author of Genesis was writing to, but also the kind of literary genre that was being applied. In the spiritual sense... Well, we will do what we were doing in the New Testament when we consider the Old Testament. So we will consider the other book in light of the one we are studying. In this case, we will consider the New Testament in light of the Old. Okay, so the earth was without form. The first thing created, as portrayed in this description, my friends, is what? But this amorphous mass of land submerged in water. And once again, not something that argues against the Big Bang Theory. No, this is just simply a description as it was written by the author of Genesis and intended by the Holy Spirit. So this amorphous mass of land submerged in water. Now, this is conceptualized or conceived as the what but raw material from which God then shapes the world into its recognizable parts or recognizable form, huh? What about the deep in verse 2, the deep? The deep is but the cosmic ocean that forms the seas. If you were to read Psalm chapter 3, verse 7, we read of the deep as the cosmic ocean that forms the seas. This is why we always read one verse in light of another verse, one chapter in light of another chapter, one book in light of another book, one testament in light of another testament, because 
in there lies the intelligible coordination of our faith. So important, my friends, to see this as such an important key to interpret sacred scripture. So this cosmic ocean uh, that forms the seas. What about the Spirit of God? In verse 2, and the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God. Some render this phrase as a wind from God or even a mighty wind. Really, both translations are possible from a grammatical standpoint, if you were to translate the Hebrew here. However, if you were to go to the Revised Standard Version translation, it is preferable because uh, you get the same expression uh, used elsewhere in the Pentateuch as a reference to God's Spirit. Elsewhere in the Bible, the Divine Spirit in the RSV is associated with God's creative work. In Job chapter 33, we read of uh, God's creative work. And of course, the preferred interpretation throughout Christian history takes it as a reference to the Holy Spirit. If you were to go to the first beatitude that I have talked about so much, in many ways it is echoing what but this verse. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The Greek word therefore spirit is penuma, which is best translated as breath or wind. So the spirit is the breath or wind of God. And the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God, a wind uh, from God, a mighty wind, a wind that is the breath of God. When God created man, he breathed life into man, the, the ruach of God, where he literally breathes life into man. This breath is but a wind, okay? His breath is, is his spirit. He's, he's pouring his love, which is the Holy Spirit, into man. And as he's doing so, he's giving birth to man. So, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. In many ways, my friends, when you start breaking down the pneuma of God, the breath of God, it really does bring us back to uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And it does so as also a gentle reminder that we are called to long for God the same way our lungs long for air, right? This is the kind of imagery that we are dealing with. Have you ever been out of breath? Have you ever been um, underwater for a long time and you were made to <laughs> swim rapidly to the top of a pool or a body of water to catch your breath? That panting, uh, <sighs> right? That is the kind of of panting, of, of pining, of longing for God that this first beatitude is talking about. The Spirit of God is the breath of God, and the breath of God is like a wind, uh, is like a wind. So some powerful imagery here, once again, when you begin to juxtapose one Old Testament text up against one New Testament text, especially when that New Testament text is the first beatitude which kickstarts the whole Sermon on the Mount. Okay, the Sermon on the Mount is given to us from Matthew chapters 5 to 7, which includes that great Sermon on Trust and the many uh, great truths that give meaning to Christ's objective moral standard. It's all hinged to what? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Isn't it interesting that here he doesn't say, blessed are those who give alms, 
or blessed are, are, are those who give drink to the thirsty. He doesn't say that because God understands that before we do that rightly, we have to first long for God the same way our lungs long for air. Let's stay with this just a bit further. How many of you out there have recently been on an airplane? What does the stewardess say on an airplane? But before you go to help your neighbor, what must you do first? But grab an oxygen mask. Why does the stewardess tell you to grab an oxygen mask? Because you can't help your neighbor if you can't breathe. Right? Right? So if the world up there gets it in the sky, let us get it down here. Right? Let us breathe the oxygen of the Holy Spirit that we might be able to assist our neighbor. That yes, we might be able to give alms as we ought and give drink to the thirsty and, and, and shelter the homeless and all the rest that the Sermon on the Mount talks about. We must establish this longing for God. And again, my friends, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 kind of projects upon all of this. Because what are we talking about here in Genesis 1, verse 2? But creation and the, and the beginning of the beginning. Right? So if we want to become a new creation in Christ, then that's where you start. That's where you start. All right. So the Spirit of God was moving, moving, i.e. hovering or fluttering like an eagle over its young, right? Okay, Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. One day. So, chapter 1, verse 3, that all-important phrase, God said. How powerful is that? If you were to read this in conjunction with Psalm chapter 33, verses 6 to 9, you see that, again, the universe is and was created by a divine utterance. When God speaks, He performs a great work. He performs a great work. This is the power of the Word of God. Incidentally, in several creation myths of the Near East, I touched upon this yesterday, the world emerged out of a what but conflict between rival gods. In Genesis, in Genesis, the word of God goes forth unchallenged, meaning no resistance or rival. According to the New Testament, in particular in, in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, and Hebrew chapter 1, verse 2, the creative word is not simply a power, but a person, right? God the Son, through whom all things were made. Yesterday, I had touched upon John chapter 1, verse 1, to talk about the relationship between the phrase, in the beginning, the Greek there for John is iniarche, in the beginning. We read there, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So what is that there? What is the Greek word for word, but logos? Logos, it can mean word or, or statement or utterance. What did I just say? A divine utterance, huh? Interestingly, the term logos is used over 300 times in the New Testament. Now, the backdrop of this concept for John is especially important. It's, it's philosophical 
but also certainly biblical. Ancient Greek philosophers would associate the word with what? But order and design of the universe, or even with an intelligible expression of the mind of God as he sustains and governs it. This was uh, one understanding of the logos. In biblical tradition, the word is again that powerful utterance of God. Lastly, and I think this to be very important to just kind of grab hold of the full meaning of this verse, another biblical tradition links the word of God with the wisdom of God who was depicted as God's eternal companion, uh, the craftsman who labored alongside God at creation, and really the one who remains a source of life for the world. John, it would appear, has pulled all three of these traditions together to say something entirely new. And what is that? That the Word of God is not so much an abstract principle or even an audible power in as much as it is a divine person, the person of God. John, as I hinted at yesterday, with great intention (laughs) in the opening of his gospel, employs language and imagery from Genesis that we might come to understand who Jesus is, right? Again, not some abstract, impersonal force, but the living God, okay? And to read Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, certainly as we read the old in light of the new, we should be reading John chapter 1, verse 1, as, as John would want us reading it. If you read Genesis chapter 1, verse 3 closely, what do you see? Uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the beginning, right? The Father creates heaven and earth. The Spirit moves over the waters, and the Son who acts while the Father is speaking, separating the light from the darkness. So there is the Trinity from all eternity revealing itself. How about verse 4 here? Good. I touched upon this yesterday. What does good indicate? Well, on one level, good indicates that creation corresponds perfectly to the divine purpose for which it was made. The goodness of the natural world certainly punctuates this account. If you're to go to verse 10, 12, 18, going down here, 21, 25, and 31, all things that he creates, he says they are goods. But remember what the tov in the Hebrew means, just not that which is good, but also true and beautiful. So what is good, my friends, is attractive. It is like a fragrance to the bloom. Mm? You're just kind of drawn to it by its very nature. That's the power of goodness. So creation in of itself should be really a great invitation to contemplate God who is creator. In point of fact, God uses his creation that we might come to better understand who he is as father, because creation is an expression of who he is as father, a father who loves. Just as I might write a letter to my child, to maybe my daughter, about how I feel about her, so does God (laughs) write a love letter to us. And I could not say it enough, this love letter is creation itself. 
How about verse 5? God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning one day. Day and night. Here we have but the organization of time with its recurring cycles of daylight and darkness. This is the work of the first day. And here again, we should highlight that the Hebrew word yom, while is capable of communicating various durations of time and, and even a 24-hour day, it's a variation of time or a 24-hour day that has purpose, right? God just didn't use his days to pass time or to kill time. No, he used his days to create. And so it is, my friends, we have this challenge that is before us, do we not? To participate in God's work by creating something new, which first and foremost is always becoming a new creation in him, but then also doing good deeds, good deeds that are rooted in, in the truth of Jesus Christ and, and deeds that are beautiful, right? This is what our days should be about. Incidentally, I should remark upon something else here. We know of the word vanity. Vanity. Vanity is a word that comes from the Latin vanus. It means uh, nothingness or a waste of time. So when we hear that phrase in the Old Testament, woe to you, vanity, what is it that we are really hearing? Um, maybe we are to read this within the context of our preoccupation of what we look like. On one level, yeah, that's fine. But that phrase, woe to you, O vanity, has more to do with woe to those things that have been a waste of time, that have been empty of meaning, that have no point to the deeper salvific mission that is before us. That is what the author is much more concerned about. Yes, part of this is being preoccupied with the material world and what we look like, maybe what we spend our time with, but let us get underneath this. Let us come to appreciate and understand this, is, this has much more to do with how we spend our time. And again, I talk about this because within the context of days and what is uh, here in the Hebrew, it's not so much about sequence as it is relevance to how we use our days, okay? So, very important. What about verse 6 here? And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. Uh, the Hebrew term here, firmament, is related to a verb that literally means, and you read this in Exodus chapter 39, verse 33, hammer out. This suggests that the ancient Israelites imagined the firmament as a kind of hammered bowl, if you will, that is placed over the world like a, a roof or a dome, holding up waters above the earth and separating them from the seas below. This is really what we can call an ancient, ancient cosmology. And it really has, I don't want to get too philosophical on the radio, but uh, a phenomenological basis. That is to say, to the unaided senses, the sky <laughs> looks like an enormous vault, and its blueness may have suggested the idea of an ocean kind of suspended overhead. Play around with that image a little bit. 
that can be a very provocative image, but this is what's going on in the mind of the author. You heard me talk about the importance of reading this within the context of the literal sense. You know, what is the literary genre being employed? Uh, what is in the mind of the author? Who is he writing this to? What is his understanding of the ancient world? Well, well here you have it, where the sky might look like an enormous vault, and its blueness <laughs> may have suggested the idea of, the, of an ocean literally being suspended overhead. What modern readers must recognize, and the commentaries really pick up on this, certainly the Ignatius Catholic Study Bible does, the author's worldview is one of his cultural assumptions, not one of his inspired assertions. Thus, the cosmological presupposition of the author should not be taken as revealed propositions per se to uh, be accepted by faith. The church, following the wisdom, of course, of uh, St. Augustine, certainly maintains that the Bible does not contain any properly scientific teaching about nature, about the nature of the physical universe, what I was touching upon earlier. Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. How about verse 7? And God made the firmament and separated the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. And there was evening and there was morning a second day. You know, heaven, this is a word that can also be translated as sky. The Hebrew term is an archaic plural. It really is uncertain what concept the Israelites had of multiple heavens. We could read that in later Jewish tradition, the lowest level of heaven was thought to be the atmosphere, and the highest level was the dwelling place of God. Scripture, interestingly enough, elsewhere conceptualizes the heaven as a cosmic tent that is stretched over the earth. So there's lots to interpret here when it comes to heaven, and I think we're going to have to do this tomorrow as we are out of time. So... Um, I say tomorrow, but that means next Monday. So uh, this was but a teaser into what we are going to talk about on Monday. Heaven, how this was initially understood, and ultimately what kind of meaning this has to bear when uh, Jesus himself talks about it. Okay, so we will pick up with verse 8 next time. Let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.